Welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. And I have a, a most interesting show today. Kim Schweidel, did I pronounce that right, Kim? Yes, sir. Well, thanks a lot. Kim, uh, you know, guys, I started down a path. You know, I, I like to do stories and take deep dives onto things and into things. And I started looking at this whole, you know, the killing of Judge Wood and by Woody Harrelson's dad, Charles Harrelson, and the Jimmy Chagra thing. And so I started looking at this guy named Jimmy Chagra, and he was this, uh, I think he was a Lebanese heritage out of uh, uh, El Paso, and he was supposedly this huge drug smuggler. And then I find out he has this uh, this whole life up in Las Vegas, and he's he's spending millions and millions of dollars gambling in Las Vegas. And I thought, this is a heck of a story. And I got into it. I was noodling around on the internet, and and I and he supposedly Jimmy and and his brother Lee had something to do with it. Maybe we'll find out today. They made some huge score, bringing really a high quality Colombian pot from Colombia in a freighter of some kind, some big ship. One of the early examples of this kind of smuggling in the narcotics business up clear up to Boston and then the mothership has the, the little baby ships that bring it on to the uh, shore and they hide it up in Boston and then go from there. And it was a, it was a big deal. And I found Kim here who wrote a book on that was part of that. So Kim, welcome. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you, Gary. It's nice to be here. So Kim, uh, tell us the name of your book and show that, show that to us. That's the book. Folly Cove. A Smuggler's Tale of the Pot Rebellion, and it really, it really kind of takes place in the in the years from from about nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy early early seventies late sixties to about nineteen seventy five, which was when the deal you're talking about, the Boston deal, um, really happened, and the Chagras play a pretty important role in the book. Uh, I would say not as important a role as the DEA uh, uh, felt like they they played. Um, <laughs> interestingly, when I made this point in the book, when it comes to Lee, you know, Jack Strickland, Mike Halliday, they were really the the kind of the ringleaders here, and they got this whole thing going. And Lee was their attorney. The DEA didn't like Jack or Mike. They he, they just weren't sexy enough for them to be considered kingpin. So the DEA set their sights on Lee as the kingpin, as the as the guy that was really pulling all the strings, the man behind the curtain. But uh, Lee was an attorney. He was a drug lawyer. He was not, there was no reason. He was making so much money as a drug lawyer. There was no reason for him to dirty his hands, uh, you know, in, in the day-to-day -day nuts and bolts of the business. And he was not, uh, he was not that guy. Uh, although they spent years and years and millions of dollars trying to prove it, yeah, they never did. They never could. And uh, and Lee, no doubt, he crossed the line or two. But he was he was strictly a lawyer. Interesting. Now, uh, let's let's start back. How did you get into this business? I've I've read some other accounts of people, and and it was like out of the the. 60s as marijuana became more prevalent in the united states it became more demand for it they started out with uh, mainly mexican marijuana because uh, you know what we had at least in missouri is what they call ditch weed 
And it really didn't have enough THC to get anybody high. But, uh, you know, those people spent time in Missouri State Penitentiary for that ditch weed and never even got really high other than the beer they were drinking or wine they were drinking along with it. But but these guys down on the border, they had these connections in to get the really good Mexican pot at the start of this. And as that started coming up north, and they, finally they brought seeds up to Northern California, I think. But but initially the good pot came from Mexico. And, and so this is the early days when everybody was, you know, uh, a hippie and having fun. It was peace, love, the summer of love in San Francisco. So tell us a little bit about that time in your life. And you must have been part of that, <laughs> the hippie generation that got into this. Well, of course, everybody started out using it, smoking it and liking it. And, and, the whole trick was, okay, I can I can buy a half a pound or a pound or a kilo. I can break this down and and sell it to my friends and and then I can and then I can smoke for free. That's probably how ninety percent of the people that were in it started. Just wanted some good good old free pot. Our geographic location on the border being what it was, it was it was it was very tempting to, you know, to, to take that pound and turn it into five pounds or 10 pounds. And the border was wide open. You know, you could drive a truck across the border and uh, for hundreds of miles, there's places where you can drive a truck across the border. So that's kind of how it started. The interesting thing, Mike Halliday, Mike and Jack were partners. And Mike Halliday is the guy that really kind of plumbed the border because he uh, he got in with uh, the grandson of La Nacha. La Nacha was a grandmother who literally ran the entire northern Mexican drug trade. Yes, her stock and trade was opium, heroin. She ran things. She lived in Juarez. She lived in the barrio in Juarez. Well, her grandson, Hector, became friends with Mike. Hector controlled the growing fields in Sinaloa. Now, La Nancha, she didn't really like the pot trade because it's big, it's bulky, it's hard to deal with. She didn't think there was that much in it. All of a sudden, she noticed her grandson was, you know, racking up millions of dollars. And, and so that so that changed things. But it was the, it was the connection, Mike's connection to Hector that really that really got things going, turned turned it from buying a pound or two couple of hundred pounds in a truck coming across the border. Then the DEA decided that that uh, they would put checkpoints within 100 miles of every border. Uh, so once you got it across and you were going to move it, you had to move it through a DEA checkpoint. And that was no good. So then airplanes came in and, and we started landing airplanes on highways in Mexico outside the 100 mile limit. And, you know, you could get 12, 1,500 pounds on an airplane, or, or well, probably more like eight or 900 pounds on an airplane. And that went on and, and was quite successful for a long time. And it wasn't until uh, the Mexican growers down there, they would, they would yank it out of the ground and replant, yank it out of the ground. They didn't do anything to enrich their soil. They didn't do anything to make the crops better. And, and pretty soon the fields just got played out. And that's when we went to Columbia. As people wanted Columbia after that, and so yeah. uh, that's when Jack really uh, and Jimmy Shiger, to an extent, made that Colombian deal happen. 
So, uh, what was your part in this, Kim? How did you get? How did you get into this? I mean, you just guy just doesn't get out of high school and go take a undergrad uh, course in uh, pot uh, smuggling and, and that kind of. Well, yeah, I grew up. I grew up around. I grew up friends with Jack. I knew what Jack was doing. As in, I was working in. Was that in NLP? NLP? Well, I was working. Yeah, I was working in advertising at the time. And uh, my agency merged with another agency, and they had a copywriter, and and so I was I was uh, unfortunately uh, uh, let go, and you know I, I didn't I needed a job. Jack said to me, "I got something big cooking." This was right before the Col- Colombian deal. He said, "I got some big cooking. Come on!" And like I said, we were friends. I knew Mike very well. Uh, all the guys that were involved were friends. So I said, okay. You know, I got involved with Jack and did a couple of airplane deals. And the next thing I knew, I was in Boston. And I was not a, uh, you know, I I was not a planner. I was not a, a, a you know, part part of the, the brain trust of this. Although Jack Jack and I were pretty close. But, you know, I, I was I was muscle at that point. I was, I was just kind of a, a worker bee. And it was it was one of the great experiences of my life. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just it was really exciting. It was really fun. Nobody got hurt. It was it was really a good time. Now it's my understanding that back in those days, they people would just front marijuana, and then you would eventually get paid. Exactly. You know, Mike was the guy that that ran the Mexican side of it. Jack really was the guy that ran the distribution side of it. Okay. So most of the customers were Jack's customers. There were three or four main ones. And yeah, most of those were dealt with. We'd get a load, we'd send it to them, uh, and they'd say, okay, give me, you know, 10 days and then come down and collect. And that, and that's how that went. And Once you got it into the United States, do you have like, you would have like a, a one guy in Denver, for example, and then somebody would take, you know, a hundred pounds up to the gear guy in Denver. And then eventually then he'd turn around and, and pay for what he had gotten. Yeah. But mostly, mostly though, um, Jack was, wouldn't, wouldn't deal with a hundred pounds, uh, you know, 500, a thousand pounds, uh, customers were, were most of what he had. Every once in a while, he'd get a smaller customer and he'd try to build, build them up. You know, a lot of our customers were were buying tons. Now they they could pretty much liquidate that in three weeks, two three weeks. You know, it was during the during the growing season. It was you got crazy. <laughs> I bet. So there's a lot of cash money floating around. For example, you know, what would you get in cash money for one job? You'd have one big load that came in that you then helped unload or. And load up trucks or store and load up trucks, and then somebody else would drive it on north. So, what would you get? Yeah, if you did, if you unloaded it, if, if you unloaded it, you got a couple bucks a pound, you know. So, if it's a so if it's a uh, you know, an airplane load, say 800 pounds on an airplane, and you do two airplanes at a time, sometimes three, yeah. they'd be circling around overhead, come land on the highway, you load it, and then another one. So, you know, in a night, you know, you can make a couple of thousand dollars. Okay. If you drove it, the going rate for driving it was five bucks a pound. So if you if you pull a trailer with a ton of pot in it, you know, there's ten thousand dollars. And of course, it was all tax free money. 
It was interesting because those rates, I think, became were somewhat standardized throughout the industry. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, you know, it's like it's, it's just business. You know, it, it is just business. It has been run very much. Like it's very much just business. It, oh, it was interesting. So, what what about like? Uh, do you do any counter surveillance? I mean, what what uh, were, were you were you guys concerned about the cops at all? Not for a while. It, you know, in those days, there was no conspiracy law. And uh, Nixon enacted the conspiracy laws in the sometime early 70s. But with no conspiracy laws, you actually had to be caught in the act. You, you had to be, you had to have the pot in your possession. And, you know, pot smuggling was a huge game of hot potato. You did not want the pot in your possession. You wanted to get it, move it as quickly as possible. And get it out out of your possession. You know, there's thousands of miles of border, and really the only deterrent was the border patrol. But the border patrol was not looking to to police the drug business. The border patrol was about immigration, and if they happen to come across some kind of drug deal, okay, they'll act. Yeah. But they weren't looking for it. And 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 they weren't an, uh, a real effective deterrent because there just wasn't enough of them. They were underfunded and there wasn't enough. So then along comes the DEA and the DEA moved into El Paso. Initially, the DEA was inexperienced, underfunded, kind of corrupt, not very good at what they did and, and really didn't pose much of a threat. Jack Strickland was a guy who was everybody's friend. Among his friends was a, a guy named Nat Pereira, who was a big time DEA agent. You know, they drank together. They they go. knew each other. And Jack owned a bar, and Nat Pereira came into the bar one day and said, "Jack, he said you can't you, you can't go you know driving around so fast through the city. I got guys that are trying to follow you, and and you you know you're driving a Jaguar XKE, and some of these guys are going to get killed trying to keep up with." You got to slow down. <laughs> the DEA and the smugglers were really two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So we were playing a game. We were we were having our fun and getting off, and so were they. You know, and they were keeping score just like we were keeping score. Really, there was a lot of similarities there, and there was no hate. There was no you know nobody. You, if you got busted, you just took it and you, yeah. you and you went through the legal process and you did your time and Jack paid your lawyer and Jack, you know, helped your family out while you were in and you got out and you went back to work. Kind of like the mob is, is supposed to operate. Uh, uh, they, they, a lot of a lot of people that end up uh, turning witness on the mob is because they don't take care of their family. And, and, and they. Yeah, I mean, that was the while they're gone, but. But that was the only rule. You don't snitch. You know, the government knew Jack's and Mike's group didn't snitch. They 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 just they just wouldn't. There was no reason for them to. They would be taken care of. So uh you know, and that's why Jack refused to Jack Strickland refused to snitch and he ended up spending twenty seven years in prison for pot. Set an example. (laughs) Yeah. So during that time, uh, did, is that when they got involved? Did, did they use? Did he use uh, Jack and Mike? Did they use Lee Chagra down there in El Paso? They, they used, yeah. Lee was Lee was 
very early on, Lee became uh, Lee became Jack's lawyer. Jack and Lee were friends. Kind of like house Lee. counsel down there. Was it like his house counsel then if, if you had somebody that got, caught a case on farther away in another jurisdiction, maybe Lee would then go find a local lawyer and, and get that taken care of, just handle all those things. Yeah, all the all the guys knew Lee. All the guys had Lee's phone number. Everybody knew look, if you get busted, you call Lee. That's a that's the first thing you do. Very successfully litigated a lot of those cases, you know. And that and the DEA, they didn't have a lot of hate for Jack or and Mike, but they hated Lee. Oh God, they hated. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a whole lot to do with Lee. I met him, of course. I knew who he was, and he knew who I was. But we we were and uh, we didn't we didn't socialize. I didn't go to Las Vegas with him. Lee was a huge gamble. Yeah, you know, Lee really was who Jimmy wanted to be. Jimmy was the younger brother. He looked up to Lee. He wanted to be me, but he didn't want to go to law, law school. <laughs> he, he, wanted, he wanted to have the money and the status and wanted to gamble like Lee, but he, he didn't want to put the work in to become. So, so, so do you remember Jimmy Chagger during these times? Or did he ever come, you know, within your, you know, purview or your, your... Oh, now Jimmy, I knew pretty well. I actually worked with Jimmy. He came into my, we worked together quite a bit. You know, now as far as the Judge Wood thing, I, I have no special knowledge of this. Yeah. Everything that I feel about it is is conjecture. But I did know Jimmy. I knew Jimmy pretty well. So what, what was he like to work with? He's kind of a flamboyant guy, it seemed like. He was very flamboyant. Jimmy was a classic narcissist. Everybody in the group, everybody on the crew knew instinctively that if it came right down to it, Jimmy would kick you to the curb. <laughs> um, Jimmy would sacrifice you in a New York minute to save his ass. And and everybody knew that. And nobody totally trusted him. And that, that included Jack. That's one side of Jimmy. On the other side of the coin, Jimmy was Jimmy was fearless. Jimmy was brash. He could make connections in places other people couldn't make connections. He, he was audacious. He pulled off some some major things, but he was obviously not careful. I mean, building mil million dollar mansions in Las Vegas and throwing money around. He, he, he was just. He was just not careful. And Jimmy was very, very, very much into the cocaine. I'm sure it clouded his thinking, and I'm sure it was at the heart of whatever ha whatever happened between him and Charles Harrelson and, and Judge Wood. I feel like just, just my opinion is that it was probably cocaine fueled more than anything. Jimmy got coked up, shot off his mouth. Charles Harrelson was probably there, coked up, said, oh, yeah, okay, far out. I'll do that. <laughs> And the next thing you know, and that's kind of what I'm reading between the lines of uh, a study I've done on it, that, that it was one of those deals because Harrelson was those kind of guys. But going back to Jimmy, man, so he, what he brought to the table, Jack and Mike, they had their own like organization going, you know, kind of a well-tuned little organization. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were not dependent on them, but owed them their loyalty, owed lo had loyalty to those guys. Then Jimmy Chagra. He was he did he have his own separate organization or was he part of that? Did he bring what did he bring to the table for you guys? He had a few he had a few guys that he brought in. He had a 
few buyers that he that he brought in. Okay, but his organization up until the time he met Jack was he wanted to be a smuggler slash dealer, and and it was his it was his affiliation with Jack that made that happen. I mean, his first deal he didn't even have a buyer for. And he took a load to Pittsburgh and found a buyer on the street, which is <laughs> which was a very very a very Jimmy thing to do. You know, Mike had been to jail. Mike had gotten busted on a, on a, uh, a snitch. Jack got busted in New Mexico by the game wardens. Uh, they thought he was poaching antelope, and he had a trailer full of pot. Jack and Mike, neither one of them could do anything about putting a Colombian load together down in Colombia, but Jimmy could. That's why Jimmy came in. Jimmy spoke perfect Spanish. He was he was ballsy enough to go down to to uh, Colombia and find a load, and he did. And all credit goes to him for doing that. And uh, the whole thing wouldn't have probably happened without it. You know, the crew, as far as I was concerned, was completely loyal to Jack and to Mike, and and Jimmy was just kind of out there. He did play an important role in the deal. There, there are a lot of people that believe that it was all Jimmy's deal totally, but yeah. that's not that. That's not true. Yeah, uh, Jack was able to distribute. When you look at Jack, distributed more of the pot. Yeah, yeah. When, Go ahead. When you read about this and you try to learn about this whole scenario back then, it looks like it's all Jimmy Chagger. Jimmy Chagger is this. Jimmy Chagger that. He has his big smuggling operation and, and all that. And as I got into it and and I found a, a blog piece that interviewed you and some other things, I realized that Jimmy Chagger really fell in with some other guys. But he and and, and he did put that Colombian connection together. And I, what I'm hearing you say is the. Mexican pot was not as good as it once was and maybe not as plentiful and certainly not as good, but the Colombian was. Is that what you're saying? Like any, It's like anything in the free market. Customers, our customers, were asking for Colombia. They're saying, look, I can't move this Mexican pot. I, you, know, you can give me all you want, but it's going to take me months to sell it because people don't want it. People want Colombia. Uh, Jack, Jack got that message loud and clear. You know, it's a testament to him, I think, that he and others that were involved pulled off this whole Colombian deal while they were under, uh, after they had been convicted and they were waiting to go to jail. I mean, they were all going to, they were all going to jail and Jack, you know, had a baby coming and, and a new wife. And he said, I, you know, I ain't going to jail broke. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And he pulled this deal off. He pulled it off. So let's uh, talk about the deal, the Folly Cove deal, which is okay. The book's about you know some of this, but it's really about the Folly Cove deal, which is the the historic <laughs> movement of what is the Steely Dan song, the Fine Colombian. You know, I mean, it was in the popular uh, culture to get the Fine Colombian, and and, and so. Uh, the Brit pull off this Folly Cove deal, which was I historic. It was kind of the first of a kind, I think, that I know of. So tell I believe it was. Yeah. Best I could tell, Jimmy goes down and he puts it together and they get a freighter. But boy, after that, it, it's quite a story, that old freighter deal. Oh, it's quite a story. And you got to talk, you know, it's real interesting. You know, the guy that went down there was a guy named Ralph Armandaris. Ralph's a former Marine. He was a friend of Jack's. Again, another one of Jack's guys. 
It was Ralph Armendaris that went down there. You know, he got it totally embedded with the Colombians. He he saw to the loading of the freighter, you know, the weighing of the of the product, the loading of the freighter, and he rode that freighter all the way from Columbia to Boston. The interesting part of it, you know, I I didn't know Ralph that well. You know, I saw him when the third night of unloading, he got off the freighter and and I talked to him, just said, Hey brother, how you doing? And he said, I'm I need a shower. And he took off to the shower. It wasn't until I started interviewing him for the book 20, 30 years later that I really got the whole story. I didn't, I never heard the whole story of how it went down there and what happened on that boat. Yeah. And what happened on that boat was just a goat, if you'll pardon the expression. I mean, first, they, they realized like two days out that they did that, that all their fresh water had leaked away. They had no fresh water. And then there was a fire on board the boat. And then they ran into the middle of typhoon season. Boat was so old it can only make about eight knots. It was just, it, it was, oh, it was just an incredible. Part. Since it's become really good friends, and uh, he he remembered the whole event really well and really told the story well. Just but, that part of it, folks. You got to get you know, this book. Just that part of it is a heck of a story. The trip north. Oh, it really <laughs> is. And we were in, you know, we were in Boston at the time, and we were becoming pretty dispirited we most of the crew we were living in a house sleeping on air mattresses on the floor you know eating fast food and we would go every night we'd go to the glass house and we'd set up and we'd sit and we'd wait and we'd sit and we'd wait you know and then nothing happened and we'd go back to the what we call the barracks do it again the next night now like the glass house uh, by the glass house, would you have like a well, window that looked out over uh, the ocean? You got some place that you could, somebody could come right up and offload bales of marijuana. And so describe. Well, what, we called it the glass house because it was, it was like, seemed like it was glass on about all four sides. And it was kind of like this little beacon up. It was up on a hill, uh, uh, up a rock cliff. And when this was where Mike came in, we built a, a, pier down at the bottom of the cliff uh, a, a wooden pier and then we rigged a, a cable and pulley to go up to the top and we had nets and we could put about three four bales which was maybe 200 pounds in the nets and then guys would haul haul them up the hill and that and that's how that would done was done but we never thought we'd get there we thought that boat we really were thinking the worst. And in fact, the crew was getting a little out of hand. Jack gave everybody the night off. Said, okay, you, you guys take the night off. Yeah. He said, I, he's, I got an airplane coming in. We're going to fly around. I'm going to look for him. But you take the night off. And so we took the night off and we were drinking at a yacht club <laughs> somewhere. And I was kind of the responsible one. So so it was up to me to call every, every hour. Got later. Guys got drunker. I finally made the last call of the hour to Bill Russell, who was, who was there, and said, okay, I'm just checking in. He said, you need to get here. Oh, I said, what? He said, you guys need to get here right now. <laughs> I said, oh, shit. I hung up the phone. I mean, it was like, it was that everybody was drunk. It was like the Keystone Cops going down the highway, you know. And, and now that was the, the day, the night the load came. 
was the night everybody was drinking at the yacht club. So you, you, you worked for several hours, I'm sure, worked your butts off the rest of the night. Did you have to discontinue during the day or just keep going? Oh, yeah. We got one boat unloaded, about 10,000 pounds. Yeah. But, and again, I mentioned Bill Russell, who was also a big part of it. Bill was a former U.S. Army helicopter pilot. And he was He was great at logistics. And he kind of organized this whole thing. By the time we finished that first boatload and went back to the barracks, that load was on the road into the market. No matter what happened from then on, you know, we had put 10,000 pounds into the marketplace. Jack, who had who had offered every investor in El Paso three to one return on their money, just a straight three to one return, yeah, <laughs> uh, could breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Yeah. So, so we only got one boat done that first night. Second night, we got about four boats done. And then the third night, we had like one boat left. So, so there was three long nights. 50,000 pounds, 60,000 pounds. 58,000 pounds. You know, so it had been on a boat. So uh, once we got it and we had stash houses, two or three stash houses across the country and people went, I went. And it was among the people that went because that pot had to be had to be turned, you know, stirred up and turned and and exposed to air so it wouldn't mold and rot. And uh-huh. it was just a ton of work, a ton of work. It was a stink. It was the stinkiest pot you've ever smelled. And just raw. You know, your your end user never thinks about all that stuff that has to be done in order right. to get it into their little pipe. Do they? Yeah, their little roll that rolling out. Do they? <laughs> no, it was it was a lot of work, and it took you know distributing that, and then collecting the money and yeah. taking the money down, taking money down to Columbia, and you know, and all anybody wanted to do was party at that point. So I, I worked harder after. You know, I drove a couple of loads and, and worked harder after them. So the money now, uh, did, was there anybody involved in money laundering for the organization down there in El Paso? Who, who was, how were they getting rid of all that cash money or did they just hide it in? Well, they didn't get rid of all that cash money. They changed it dollar for dollar through the cashier at Caesar's Palace. They'd take what money they collected. They'd give it to Caesar's Palace. Caesar's Palace would take a percent, give us back different money. And uh, every every buck was washed through Caesars, and we we use Caesars jet to uh, to uh, collect. Because that's that's always one of the big problems when you get in this big time narcotics is the money. Yeah, most guys just kept it in footlockers in their house or in a suitcase. <laughs> you know, I had a I had a ton of cash under my bed. And you you're right. You can't go buy a house, and you can't go put it in the stock market, and they're just, I mean, you can probably get away with buying a car and, yeah. you know, take a trip, dinners, stuff like that. But, you know, it's just not money that you're going to, that kind of money is Jimmy Buffett said, it was never meant to last. If you're, you kind of blow through it and uh, blow through it and go get some more. Well, it's uh, <laughs> blow through it and go get some more. And we, and we thought we found the money tree. We thought, oh God, you know, we'll do this again and again. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, they like, they're going to save up so much until they can just like get, you know, get away from it all, figure out a way to, to put that behind them and then live, you know, how they want to live the rest of their life. Is that kind of a common theme among 
all you guys that were involved with this were getting you know, 40, 50, $60,000 at a whack and, and even more? No, I mean, it, it may have been a common theme to start. I mean, the old saying is they say you, you're always chasing your first high. You know, the first yeah. time you ever smoked pot, yeah. that's the one you're always chasing. Yeah. Well, everybody was chasing the high, but the high was not smoking it anymore. The high was going out and smuggling it and bringing it in and unloading it, distri- distributing it. Uh, that was, uh, I mean, I know Jack, that's where he got off. Jack was going to, you know, Jack said he wanted $50,000 and he was going to quit. Well, he didn't quit and he got a lot more than $50,000. Yeah. And, and you just, you're all chasing that high. You, you just, you just, you just kind of became addicted to it. And that's certainly what those Chaggers were doing As I've read about them. They were, they were losing millions and millions of dollars in Las Vegas and, and gambling. Lee liked to bet on athletic events and, it just was, they could, they, he was betting so much they could hardly even cover his bets. Oh. Uh, the casino hardly could. It was just crazy. And so it was all running through the casinos. Lee was legendary, the black striker, they called him. Yeah. He was legendary and Jimmy was trying to top him. I mean, Jimmy was j- just, you know, between the gambling and the cocaine and everything else. He, he I, I think he was just out of control and it was and it was just a matter of time before before they got him. I mean, they had the, the DEA had him in their sights, and they did get him. And to, yeah. you know, to be fair, he was never convicted of of uh, the Judge Wood assassination. Right, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy got him not guilty. <laughs> convicted his wife. Yeah. <laughs> his wife was convicted. His brother was convicted. Yeah. And 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 I knew actually knew his wife also. You know, that was kind of one thing that everybody, Jimmy could have stepped up and saved her. She didn't have to die in prison. Yeah. But as I said, Jimmy was pretty much a narcissist. narcissist. He didn't save anybody but himself. His brother was his lawyer. I mean, if his brother was privy to any of this information, it was privileged information. His brother, Joe, did not, of the murder of a federal judge. Joe was a straight ahead guy. Joe was a a pretty good lawyer and, 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 and very much above board. They got they got Joe and they got Jimmy's wife to put pressure on Jimmy. And of course, and they, I mean, somebody assassinated a federal judge. They were pissed off. Yeah. Seriously yeah. pissed off. Most expensive investigation the FBI had done after the JFK mm-hmm. uh, investigation. So it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Oh, yeah. Times. You know, we were all indicted four years and 10 months after the Boston deal. Indictments were handed down by the first uh, judicial district two months prior to the statute of limitations. Uh, we were all indicted and we all went to trial in Boston. It was a big trial. Oscar Goodman was there representing Jimmy and, and that's where I met him. And Oscar pretty quickly separated Jimmy from that trial. I don't remember how they, how they did it, but I, I don't think the judge wanted Jimmy in his courtroom and allowed him to be separated okay. in, in that trial. And it was real interesting because I, for some reason, Jack Strickland and I were commanded by the court to do a handwriting. They thought we registered in a hotel in Atlanta under assumed names, which we probably did. Yeah. And they, they wanted us to take a handwriting analysis. So after, 
after the day in court, we went we went back into the back part of the courthouse where the cells were, and I look up and there's Jimmy, and I that was the last time I ever saw Jimmy. And I gave him a cigarette and uh, we talked for a few minutes. You know, he was pretty sober at that point. And I got the impression that he pretty much knew at that point that, you know, he was, he was screwed. Yeah. And his life was just about over. Chad Scott was the DEA's golden boy, but his right-hand men were a little too interested in the product. You're a drug cop who occasionally uses drugs. Right. How do you work that out in your mind? It'll enter your mind a couple times. It didn't really with the X or the Molly. Now, method would enter my mind. You would. When they're caught dealing drugs, they flip on Chad and confess everything to the FBI. But what the feds find is a lot more complicated than drug dealing. Listen to Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou, wherever you get your podcasts. I think maybe one last question here. We don't want to give away everything out of the book. You guys need to get that book. I tell you, this is a hell of a story. What was the thread that the government started pulling that then brought this whole Folly Cove thing down? And that that's what you were convicted on, right? That particular Yeah, they got a they there was a group out of Michigan that was also involved. And this was another one of Jimmy's Jimmy's connections. And these guys were mostly the boat people. We were desert people. We didn't object about boats and tides and any of that. So these guys were the boat people. And a couple of them were arrested on a deal they did in Oregon, and they promptly snitched the, about the Boston deal. Yeah. They they'd get, they'd get off, and they and so so they gave states evidence on the Boston deal. Funny thing was, I mean, if we would have been indicted and tried in Texas, we would all gotten five years minimum. Some people would have gotten ten years. Yeah. And in the first. Judicial District of Massachusetts. I mean, we got a great judge, uh, a judge named Walter Skinner, federal judge, great judge. Uh, we got a great jury. The jury didn't like the snitches. And it's always uh, good. <laughs> you know, we, we did go, we stood trial for three weeks, but, it, but at the end of three weeks, when it was time to present the defense, the judge said, I don't want to hear it. He said, go make a deal. And the prosecution said, well, Your Honor, we've already offered them a deal. And the judge said, well, then offer them a better deal. And so we all pled out for probation. Wow. And that was, and that was the end of that. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, Kim, that's, that is a heck of a story. It's, <laughs> it's got it all. Well, and that was the end of it for me. I went on, you know, I went on to a life in advertising which is maybe a bigger crime I don't know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> selling those puppy dog clothes to people out there say oh i don't want one of those give me one of those oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> selling things to people and selling things they don't need <laughs> really well this is this has been great kim i i really appreciate you coming on and and helping enlighten us and, and uh be sure and get that book, folks. It's it's uh, Folly Cove. We may have to look this. That book, Folly by Cove. the way, is uh, that book. There it is. is, and it's on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Uh, Kim, it's really been great having you on here. I I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Gary.
So guys, don't forget, I ride a motorcycle. So look out for motorcycles when you're out there. And if you or you're, have any problems with PTSD or you have any friends or relatives or anybody that's been in the service, go to the VA website and they have a great hotline number. So thanks a lot, guys. This, is, this has been a heck of a story. And, and check that book out. Thanks, guys. Book out. Thanks, guys. Book out. Thanks, guys. Book out. Thanks, guys.